0: ...of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Playing songs so catchy, you'll hear them in your dreams tonight. tonight?
1: Everything that we think about in terms of how Kashmiris experienced the occupation is a direct result of the extreme militarization of the space. Since 1989, since the armed rebellion broke out, in one way or the other, Kashmir has been in a state of war.
0: That's Sanjay Kak. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Sanjay Kak on Kashmir in Crisis. The stunningly beautiful land of Kashmir, nestled in the Himalayas, has seen much bloodshed and suffering. Over the decades, the Indian state, in attempts to stifle resistance to its rule in Kashmir, has deployed hundreds of thousands of troops, imposed curfews, clampdowns, and crackdowns. But nothing approaches the current situation. On August 5th, the Hindu nationalist government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi took unprecedented steps. Key provisions of the Indian constitution dealing with Kashmir, Articles 370 and 35A, have been revoked. The little autonomy Kashmir had is now evaporated. It is broken as a state and is under direct rule from New Delhi. No Kashmiri was consulted. It's hard to imagine that the actions of the Modi government will quell the ongoing demands of Kashmiris for Azadi, freedom. Our guest today is Sanjay Kak. He's a New Delhi-based, award-winning, independent documentary filmmaker. His films include jashan azadi How We Celebrate Freedom, and Red Ant Dream. He's the editor of Until My Freedom Has Come and Witness. I talked with him in Vancouver, British Columbia in mid-November 2019. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, David. Thank you for having me.
0: You've said that Kashmir's landscape carries ancient burdens. What do you mean by that?
1: One of the first things I realized when I sort of began to seriously look at Kashmir was that the weight of being colonized uh, was a very heavy and ever-present one. You know, I'm sure every culture feels these things. But uh, in Kashmir, I felt that it was just always below the surface. So this idea that Kashmir has been colonized for five centuries and that Kashmiris have not been their own people for a very long time. I think this was a very deep and felt and felt like a burden. Uh, And that's really what I meant.
0: Talk about uh, something that's called Kashmiri that this is a a unique culture with its own language, uh, its own music. Uh, Architecturally, it's quite singular as well. So there's a Very strong, and you happen to be Kashmiri, uh, a very strong cultural identity.
1: So there are two uh, very interesting things here, David. The word Kashmiriyat itself is of relatively recent usage. And you will find, and to your surprise, that many Kashmiris will sort of, uh, you know, blanch at the, the use of the word. And there's an explanation. Because in recent years in India, the word Kashmiriyat has been uh, time and again produced in front of Kashmiris to suggest that your struggle is not Kashmiriyat. You know, that if you, if you're, for example, if your practice, if your faith is Muslim, well, that's not really Kashmiriyat. You know, so it's become a kind of word which has been appropriated by the Indian state and by the instruments of the Indian state in the shape of the media, in the shape of its uh, sort of so-called liberal commentators and so on. So um, having said that, so while Kashmiriyat might have become a bit of a loaded word in Kashmir, I have no doubt that something like that does exist. And if I might pull back and suggest that I think what is unique about Kashmir is its geographical location. Um, Many Indians tend, David, to think of Kashmir as like the northern end of India. You know, this is where India ends. But the truth is that geographically, Kashmir is where the Indian subcontinent opens out into the world. So if we were to see simply where it's located... What do we have? We have to the east, we have Ladakh, we have Tibet, we have China, and Kashmiris have historically traded on those routes. To its north, we have Central Asia, we have Kazakhstan, we have Tajikistan, and David from Srinagar, you know, these Central Asian republics are much closer than New Delhi is. And then to the west, we have Pakistan, we have Afghanistan, we have Iran. And all of these have greatly shaped Kashmiri culture. And to the south, and that you can't deny that, you have India or the Indian subcontinent, which was, you know, up to a point, uh, sort of Hindu as well. So the point I'm trying to make is that it sat at this kind of incredible crossroads where To be open to other faiths, other cultures, other civilizations, other impulses, to trade with them. Uh, The negotiation of culture, I think, uh, was a very natural phenomenon in Kashmir. And I would actually argue that 1947 and the creation of India and Pakistan and the coming up of modern borders and the wars between India and Pakistan and the line of control as it is called which separates these two countries they actually imposed a kind of isolation on kashmir which is historically uh, not kashmir and, and the poet zarif ahmed zarif uh, uh, who uh, i know quite well he's a kashmiri poet he i once heard him say that look you people have uh, shut off one of our nostrils By putting this ghastly border on our head, allow us to breathe with both our nostrils and then just see how much more humane we are capable of being. And I think it's a lovely metaphor that Kashmir since 1947 has literally been breathing on one nostril because our natural flows of the Kashmir Valley, David, are not necessarily towards the south, towards India. You know, our rivers flow into what is now Pakistan. Prior to 1947, the shortest road out of the valley led you to Muzaffarabad, to Mirpur, to Sialkot, and Rawalpindi. Pindi. So, in a sense, partition imposed a kind of abnormal conjoining of Kashmir with the Indian subcontinent.
0: And one third of the state is controlled by Pakistan, two-thirds is controlled by India and there's also a sliver of uh, Jammu and Kashmir that uh, China has control of. How did that come about? So basically the
1: um, um, the essential division was between uh, Pakistan and India uh, which was really based uh, eventually on the two wars uh, or three wars that the two countries have fought and w- wherever Uh, They finally stopped. That was the line of control. So um, what is now called, what in India we call Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Uh, These are the regions of uh, Azad Kashmir, which is uh, Muzaffarabad. And then, of course, the old uh, um, Gilgit-Baltistan, which has very strong cultural and other ties with the Kargil region of, of Ladakh. The part that that China controls was actually ceded to China by the Pakistanis. That's a relatively recent phenomenon. And this is in in this very high altitude, very forbidding, very difficult territory called Aksai Chin. After
0: 1947, this issue continues to be unresolved... Uh, festers. There are skirmishes. There are wars. There's conflicts, but something more substantial happens in terms of resistance starting in 1989.
1: From the 80s onwards, every protest, every den- demonstration in Kashmir is always flagged and punctuated by this word "azadi." Ham azadi? What do we want? Freedom. So I think Azadi means freedom. freedom. So this appeared around those years, in the mid to late 80s for the first time. Although it wasn't an armed resistance, there were stray signs in the 70s. There was a small group of college-educated kids who kind of got hold of some pistols and some small explosives called the Al-Fatah. But they were put down very quickly. Most of them were kind of appropriated and, you know, they joined the police and and the administration. Uh, But it wasn't really a serious challenge. And um, most people will agree that um, in 1987, there's famously this election, uh, which was completely in character with all the elections that had preceded it, massively rigged. And perhaps in another time, it would not have mattered. But in 87, one of the political formations which stood for the election was a loose uh, sort of coalition of parties and groups uh, called the Muslim United Front, MUF, it was called. And MUF was actually doing quite well. And they had polled a lot of votes. But as was the tradition in Kashmir, at the last minute, uh, the ballot boxes were opened, candidates were picked up, beaten up. I mean, it was just, it was a complete travesty. Even by the standards of rigged elections in India, it was too much. So, something very significant, I think, clicked after the rigging. So, although some people tend to think that the armed resistance in Kashmir was because of the rigged election, I think that's an incorrect reading. The fact is that the election provided a kind of, it was literally the last straw that broke the camel's back. We could not see much happening between 87 and 89, but by late 89, uh, a proper armed insurgency. Uh, arrived on the scene. Uh, David, the important thing is that we also have to pay attention to what this year is, because 89 is also the time when the Soviet Union is withdrawing from Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan uh, has on on its hands a whole lot of uh, the Mujahideen, which with great support from the American uh, public and state, uh, they have waged wars, uh, with the Soviets, with... And more importantly, Pakistan is also, um, in some crude sense, wanting to avenge uh, its loss of its eastern division in 1971, for which the Pakistani state and the Pakistani army have never forgiven India for.
0: Uh, That led to the creation of the independent country of Bangladesh.
1: That's right. So... uh, what I'm trying to point out to you is that 1989 is, is a moment that takes on a valency on account of a multiple series of events. It has to do with what's happening in Pakistan. It has to do with what's happening in Kashmir. It has to do with past histories. And everything comes together and then explodes in an armed rebellion.
0: Now, give a sense of what occupation looks like. Uh, roadblocks, checkpoints, uh, barbed wire, army camps, detention centers, uh, and and the rest. What's life like for ordinary Kashmiris in what is often called the most densely militarized zone in the world with hundreds of thousands of uh, Indian security forces? Quite simply,
1: any place which has as many soldiers with the kind of density That Kashmir has, I think is going to have a rebellion. So I would argue, David, that your hometown of Boulder, Colorado, you know, if suddenly half a million uh, soldiers of whatever country arrived, they could have been U.S. Army, you know, land up there and start telling people what to do. I don't think it's going to lead to anything other than, you know, that kind of a rebellion. Everything that we think about in terms of how Kashmiris experience the occupation is a direct result of the extreme militarization of the space. I mean, conservative estimates say that it's a half a million soldiers. Now, half a million soldiers on a tiny valley, which you can literally drive from one end of it to the other in the course of a day, is a tremendous, tremendous pressure on people. That would be at the very least, even if the soldiers were not being obnoxious, you know. But since 1989, since the armed rebellion broke out, in one way or the other, Kashmir has been in a state of war. And the presence of the army, their pursuit of the militants, their inability to distinguish between friend and foe has meant that, in a sense, the... The half a million soldiers are not simply at war with the militants. They are at war with the people. And they're not at war with a foreign army or they're not at war with a uniformed army. They're at war war with everybody who's around them. So this has resulted in a very long history of all the consequences uh, of militarization, some of which you mentioned, you know, which is control, the control of resources, the fact that some of the most uh, prized pieces of land in Kashmir uh, have been and continue to be occupied by the military, the fact that the civil administration is really, really subservient uh, to the military. I know that until very recently, in uh, small towns like Handwara or Kupwara, as soon as you entered the town, there would be a board outside which said, uh, you know, town commander, major so-and-so, and and a phone number. It was a very clear declaration that um, there might be a civil administration there, but it was the military which was in command. So I think that um, the long history of the military presence has led to all kinds of very, very dark um, dimensions. So um, if you had to just look at, and for a long time, David, these were not things that we had a clear idea about. Everybody knew torture exists. Everybody knew there are disappearances. People whispered about the existence of unmarked graves, uh, mass graves, Um People talked about torture, of sexual violence, but it's only in the last decade or so that uh, with the emergence of a very, very strong and vocal and articulate civil society, that these things have begun to be nailed into the ground, you know. So, for example, uh, we can speak with great respect of, of the work of the Jammu Kashmir Coalition of Civil Societies who have produced a series of absolutely remarkable uh, reports, you know. So they did one on uh, disappearances and for the first time gave us a figure of eight to 10,000 people disappeared. They have done a harrowing new report on torture. Uh, they have done, I think, what is a very brave report called Alleged Perpetrators to demonstrate the kind of impunity that uh, the military has. Uh, so their whole idea of this report was to actually name a 100 people and say, look, this is what they did. This is what the legal papers say, and why is no one taking action against them? So with it are the darker stories of um, sort of sexual violence, which in a conservative society, people tend not to want to talk about, or even torture, Because torture, when people say torture, they also mean uh, sexual torture, you know. So, and which applies not just to women, but also to men. So, these are aspects of of that militarization, which it's only now that I think Kashmiris are even finding a voice for it. And I have to say this, David, that you know about these two recent UN reports that, that came out about Kashmir which were the first time that the UN system had sort of systematically responded to the last 30 years in Kashmir. And a lot of that report takes its cues from the work of civil society, Kashmiri civil society.
0: One of the uh, interesting terms uh, in this conflict that I encountered was half-widow. Explain what that is.
1: So half-widows was a, term that grew out of this phenomenon of the disappearances of people, where there were people who were picked up, some it was known that they had been picked up by the security forces. Most of the time, actually, people knew that who had picked them up and when and so on and so forth. but who then disappeared into some dark system where you were not sure whether dead, whether in prison, where they were in prison somewhere else outside of Kashmir. So for the families of those men, mostly, they were left in a state of limbo, which is that they didn't know if their loved ones, their husbands, their sons, their fathers were going to come back. And so, you know, even if for wives and children, it meant one thing, uh, you know, for a lot of women, they were left sometimes for 5, 10, 15, 20 years waiting for a partner who might never come back. So I think the word half-widows uh, actually came out of as a response to that to describe the condition, the terrible condition of people who didn't know where their loved ones were.
0: And there's a, an activist woman there, Ahangar, uh, who's really taken this issue and, and made it known.
1: So Parvina Ahangar, who is... Um, Become some kind of a global figure now it was one of the people who helped set up a very, very powerful organization called APDP, the Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons. Uh, they have, with a great deal of moral authority, Parveena herself lost a, uh, not, I wouldn't say lost, but her 19 or 20-year-old son was picked up and never came back. And Parvina has had a very strong, simple uh, position, which is to say that, uh, tell me where my son is. I just want to know why he could be dead. I want to know where he is. I want to know where his grave is. And I'm not going to accept anything else, you know. So uh, they meet on, I think, the the uh, 10th of every month in a public park in Srinagar. And they've been doing this for 6 or seven, ten years, maybe longer. Rain, sunshine, hail, whatever it is, they'll be there. Uh, just not letting the world forget that their loved ones are missing. So it is a very powerful and poignant uh, moral force that the APDP and Parvina Ahangar represent.
0: Now, the Indian state's narrative has consistently been well there may be a few malcontents in Kashmir but uh, these are actually uh, cross border terrorists that are armed and trained by Pakistan and that there are very few uh, Kashmiris involved
1: the two ways in which the Indian state defends what it does in Kashmir if the issue of Kashmir Kashmiri pundits is a kind of Rational by which to paint the movement in unpleasant colors, then the conjuring up the specter of Pakistan is, of course, the big one, you know, because it's almost guaranteed to get you an audience in India because the way we have grown as two countries over the last 70 years, our almost visceral Uh, dislike for each other means that if you say, oh, Pakistan is behind it, then you can be guaranteed that most Indians will say, well, of course, then this is illegitimate. In fact, it's very interesting that until, say, a decade ago, uh, the government would would be delighted every time there were militants killed and then they would happily tell us about how these were foreign militants. But it's become increasingly difficult for them to do that. Because most of the boys who die, and they are boys really, David. The, most of them are between the ages of 20 and 25. I would say that 95% of them are Kashmiris now. Has Pakistan aided and abetted the armed militancy? Of course they have. Does Pakistan have some uh, completely kind of altruistic uh, reason to support the militancy and the struggle in Kashmir? No. They have their own vested interests. Does that mean that what we see in Kashmir uh, would be nothing without the influence of Pakistan? I think that would be a gross misreading of the situation. And I I say this often, David, that I think if if people want to know whether or not this is a popular movement, the best barometer of it is to just be present when there's a funeral of a militant. Because then when... Thousands of people, 5,000, 10,000 people will walk from miles away. They will evade checkposts and, you know, traffic restrictions and walk across the fields to pay their respects to someone who has died. That's when you know that this is clearly not a, uh, it's not something that is casual or it's not just some meddling neighbor which has caused this, but that it's a deeply felt struggle.
0: Deaths, disappearances, those kind of statistics can be measured. But can you talk about the psychological impact of occupation, of uh, living in a militarized zone? What does it do to the, not just the occupied, but to the occupier as well, about all these hundreds of thousands of uh, Indian troops in Kashmir? So... uh
1: at the very least and on an ordinary day even if even if there's no disaster just the act of negotiating your way past literally dozens of checkpoints having to show your identification all over the place having to contend with the fact that at any moment things can get out of control a, a simple altercation at a checkpoint between a bus conductor and a soldier could end up with disaster what it means is that everybody is left in a perpetual state of anxiety so when you talked about sort of the the mental pressures of it it this is now well documented you know uh Local psychiatrists have done it. Uh, organizations like Medicines Sans Frontiers have done it. That the level of psychiatric um, illness in Kashmir is very, very high. The level of usage of medication is out of control. People are simply on anti-anxiety medicines. You know, they what what used to be called and continues to be called post-traumatic stress disorder. The fact is that it's not post-traumatic in Kashmir. You know, it's a... People are getting disabled by everyday life. So it's not... The trauma is not over. The trauma is ongoing. It's everyday. Think of it, David. In a, We talked about how small a place Kashmir is. Think of 70,000 dead How many families are there who have actually had somebody die in this um, conflict? Think of every time one person dies, at least five get injured, right? Think of their families. Think of the incapacities it causes, the limbs that are damaged, the working lives that are truncated. Think of the arrests. Think of the tortures. Now we are talking not about 70,000 dead or, you know, 500,000 injured. But we could be talking over 30 years of, you know, half a million people who have been processed through the system of arrests, of tortures, of beating, of humiliation. So everybody carries a very thin skin as a consequence. You know, I often have thought about it, that what makes that society still function? And I think, ironically... I would say the fact that the family system continues to remain quite strong in Kashmir. And it's, it's in a sense that binds people together. And in many ways, faith, religious faith. I think for people, the mosque, the prayer, uh, these are the things that become their survival at a time like this.
0: You're listening to Sanjay Kak on Kashmir Crisis. This is independent alternative radio. You can order copies of this program by calling one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order online on our website alternativeradio.org. dot org. That's alternative radio dot org. And what about the impact on the occupiers, this huge army, most of whom are not from uh, Kashmir. They're from other parts of India. They don't speak Kashmiri. Uh, they don't know Urdu.
1: I think it's a very important and valid question. I remember some years listening, ago listening to uh, the Indian uh, scholar uh, Ashish Nandi talk about torture and how when the session of torture finishes between the tortured and the torturer. There is a third person in that room and that is the family of the torturer. So when he washes his hands and puts on his shirt and goes home, what does he carry home? So I think that it would be a good point to ask that these half a million soldiers who have spent years literally sitting upon a population who they know hate them, I think it must be doing something terrible to them. you know I mean, this everybody talks about, and I've also seen it when small children in a village walk past these heavily armed soldiers who are just standing there all day, you do see these soldiers trying to reach out to those kids, say something, want to talk. you know, they are human beings after all. But the antipathy on the part of the local population is so strong that the children will very, very rarely respond. And what does that do to people? You know, this complete alienation of feeling that you are, um, I think that even if no one actually amongst them uses that word, the feeling that you are an occupying army and that everybody around here loathes you. I think I, I would be very, very... Destabilized if I was at the receiving end of something like that.
0: In 2016, in this decades-long uprising in Kashmir, a young militant is killed. His name is Burhan Wani, 22 years old. Uh, that sets off a new round, a new wave of resistance. What, what triggers that? Simply the death of this young man? So uh,
1: this is very interesting because Burhan Vani was in many ways not a very well-known militant commander. He's not somebody who had some enviable track record of launching some brave attacks or anything like that. But there was one thing very significant about him, which is that, well, he was a young, good-looking young man. But he also started posting pictures of himself and his cohort out in the sunlight. And I think it's this is quite an interesting moment to think about what some how powerful something like that can be. Because militants had traditionally always been they had put out their own videos, but they were usually in these dark rooms with a light on and some, you know, two guns crossed at the back with some strange flag behind them with their faces covered so it was never an attractive idea but burhan started releasing these pictures in which his face was clearly visible he would mostly be out on a sunny day in an apple orchard or in you know a little spot in the mountains making tea for his comrades he would pose with his pals so in a sense he gave a face to the armed militancy He gave it a face and he gave it, for want of a better word, a grace. And I think that's very interesting because he did become a poster boy for the militancy. And I do recall at that time the police were often quoted as saying, oh, this guy's nobody, he's just a pretty boy, you know, he's never fought anything or anybody. But maybe that's the whole point. The point is that, you know, you don't become an icon simply because you do the obvious thing. And I think Burhanwani is significant, David, because he did the what was unobvious at that time, but in retrospect was a very, very smart move. He humanized the militancy and created a kind of space within which um, the armed struggle got more legitimacy than before.
0: In February 2019, uh, a suicide bomber, which is a unique phenomenon, this had not been something part of the resistance, a suicide bomber uh, blows up a bus carrying something like 40 members of the Indian security forces. Repression is ramped up, bringing us very quickly to the events of August 5th. So talk about that period between this suicide bombing and the abrogation of Article 370 and Article 35A of the Indian Constitution. So the
1: uh, suicide attack on the convoy of paramilitary soldiers in February 2019 um, actually doesn't happen out of nowhere. Uh, it was actually preceded by at least six months of a very, very severe crackdown in Kashmir. And you can understand when I've we've been talking about describing what the normal is, then when we say a severe crackdown, then you can imagine what that meant. Basically, not so much in Srinagar City, but in the countryside, the military was really going down to every village, every home, Uh, just keeping an extraordinary pressure on people, which also meant that they were on a very, very state of heightened alert. Uh, This military presence was everywhere. So this attack came in the middle of that. One, you could, if you like, read it as a kind of reaction to the six months preceding it, which is what it was. But you're also forced then to wonder that how on earth could a man take a load vehicle loaded with explosives and drive it right in the middle of a military convoy when uh, the convoy is on the move? And at a time when, you know, when the military convoy moves, David, in Kashmir, all civilian traffic stops on both sides of the road. So it was an absolutely incredible event and it happened it was tragic 42 men lost their lives and of course this was politically milked by the ruling bjp uh, in a very horrid sort of way those flag draped coffins coming back to their villages and processions and you know anti pakistan rhetoric without even anybody knowing whether this boy was from pakistan or not you know we still don't know uh, um, and of course, this was followed by um, uh, some skirmishes on the border, what the Indian government called uh, the surgical strikes against camps I- across the border in Pakistan. Um, opinion is hugely divided on that. Both international media and Pakistani media reported that nothing of significance was damaged, but the Indian side claimed that it was a huge victory. Indian Air Force fighter jets crossed over the border. One of them was shot down. The pilot was then quite graciously returned. But even that shooting down of our Indian aircraft was turned into a triumph by the Indian government, uh, which is very difficult for me to understand how when your own aircraft gets shot and your pilot gets captured, how that's a triumph for you. So this is the background to, to the events of February 19. But we all knew that, Something is cooking, you know. There was an election due in May. I think that many people, and it's not just cynics like us, who suspected that those events had something to do with the election. But in a quite in a widespread sort of way, even politicians in India, um, I know even in uh, you know even amongst Dalit politicians, a lot of people were speaking about it, saying that we don't buy this. This is something is going on here. What happened on August fifth? is a very different level of things. It's truly a tectonic shift in that sense. Article 370 was that linchpin that governed the relationship between the state of India and the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And of course, it had been emptied of a lot of meaning over the years. But some symbolic things remained, like the state of Jammu Kashmir had its own flag, um, small little, you know, sort of symbols of its separate identity. Everything else had been whittled over the years. But for the BJP, the symbolic value of just taking an axe and cutting that, that linchpin, taking away the fig leaf was very important. And and they did it uh, in a rather spectacular and unthinking fashion. Mm-hmm. Article 35A was more critical, actually, because this uh, is what gave the residents of the state of Jammu and Kashmir, what we call state subjects, certain special rights. So it allowed them like residents of the state and not just say Kashmiri Muslims, but also Ladakhis and also people from Jammu and Muslims from the Pahadi area and all that, all of them uh, first rights on jobs within the state on state government jobs. But much more importantly, it meant that people who were not state subjects could not buy property in JNK. So it gave people a certain kind of protection and some would argue that the fact that J&K as a state, Jammu and Kashmir as a state, does not have, you never see the kind of grinding poverty that you see in India, particularly in northern India, is because of the protections of 370 and 35A. You know, while, while the BJP is making the claim that, you know, we are removing it in order to bring prosperity to Kashmir. Well, very eminent Indian economists like Prabhat Patnaik, like Jean Drez, who have looked at the ground, are saying, no, it's the other way around. These people have managed because they have not been open to the uh, terrible, uh, you know, influences of uh, large sums of money. And... So this is a, it's a, it's a uh, between the two, between Article 370 and 35A, I would in fact argue that 35A is actually, for Kashmiris, the much more uh, loaded one. Because it could pave the way for large-scale population transfers. It could scale, uh, sort of pave the way for uh, money and uh, swamping Kashmir, uh, people losing their land. So, this has been the most worrisome thing, actually, in many ways. Uh,
0: In fact, the richest man in India, Mukesh Ambani, has openly said uh, he's going to be uh, developing. uh, You know, this word, Vikas, comes up a lot. Uh, Modi uses it as well. It's all about Vikas. It's all about, what does it mean, actually?
1: So, uh, Vikas is, of course, development. But that uh, notion of modern capitalistic Development, We all by now in India, I think it's worn thin and people know that that promise of uh, capitalism and capital is a false one.
0: What prompted uh, Modi and his home minister, Amit Shah, who's very influential and powerful in the uh, government in Delhi, what prompted them to take this action on, on August 5th?
1: So we'll never know the answer to that, obviously, but uh, this has been, the removal of Article 370 has been an article of faith for the BJP. So you have to grant them this one, that they've been from from 1955 onwards, they, it's been part of their manifestos and so on, because they see it, they are not simply willing to concede the special nature of the relationship between Kashmir and India they see it as a sign of weakness and they have worked on it and made it part of their credo to a point where most people in the BJP actually think that the rank and file I'm talking about probably think that if you remove article 370, you know, India's problems will be solved. It's just, it's just something that has been so assiduously cultivated and carefully constructed, that it's taken on a life way beyond uh, what we see.
0: And you've said that uh, as a result of what the Modi government has done, there's a, I'm quoting you, a brutal clarity of today.
1: Yes, because I think, you know, one of the things, one of the characteristics of the way, for example, previous governments like those led by the Congress was that their intentions were never clear. They were not going to let Kashmiris have more autonomy. They were not going to be uh, reduce the level of soldiers. But there was a kind of sort of hypocritical, oh, we care for the Kashmiris. So, you know, two steps forward, one step back, that kind of thing. But with the BJP under Modi and under Amit Shah, I don't think they are interested in those pretenses. So some people in Kashmir will argue that for the resistance on the ground, in many ways, this is not a bad thing. Because it just with complete clarity lets you know what you're up against. Whereas earlier, um, it had confused people. And, uh, you know, we've often spoken about it, but what in Kashmir we call the middle ground, you know, between the the pro-independentist position and, the, and, and India's position, there was some sort of a middle ground of political formations that were pro-India. These were, would, for example, I would describe something like the National Conference uh, led by Farooq Abdullah and Omar Abdullah, who both have been chief ministers of the state, or the People's Democratic Party led by Mehbooba Mufti and earlier her father, uh, Mufti Mohammed Saeed and ironically uh, on August 5th all of these people and all of their top cadre were also arrested and they still remain incarcerated so that's very telling because at one sort of in one sweep you have gotten rid of everybody who was on your side these were people who kept the flag of India flying in Kashmir and yet these are the people who have also been jumped into jail and where they still are.
0: Now, Kashmir is going to be ruled under this new uh, situation uh, directly from Delhi as a union territory. What does that mean? So, it just means that the legislative assembly has fewer powers. It
1: means exactly that, David. It means it will be ruled directly from Delhi. So, even earlier, it's not as if the government of India in Delhi or the military wasn't calling the shots. It just means now that even that slightly uh, ambiguous layer of popular support that the governments and JNK is to claim on account of being elected uh, in that way, I think that's now gone. You know, there will be elections, but they will mean almost nothing.
0: Well, you say that domination does not mean victory.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, those were the closing words of the film that I finished in 2007, Jashne Azadi. And I think that's the key thing, that simply because you can put 500,000 or 600,000 or 700,000 soldiers sitting on top of people, that doesn't mean you won. It simply means that you're dominating them. And if we were to look at the histories of places like Afghanistan, David, and the armies that came and the armies that went. I think there's a lesson somewhere there.
0: Now, what was the reaction of um, liberal educated elites uh, in in India to the Modi government's move on uh, August 5th? I know some of the comments were made, well, this is no way to treat our fellow Indians. Is that what Kashmiris wanted to hear from liberals? Um, No, obviously not. Um, but I have to say that
1: for a change, I thought that uh, liberal progressive opinion in India uh, did finally wake up to the enormity of what Kashmiris had been experiencing in some ways, because so far they had been seeing it as a kind of human rights situation. Oh, this shouldn't happen. There should not be torture. There should not be custodial killings and, you know, disappearances. But I think with August 5th, they realized that there was a a legal, a political, or even a constitutional travesty that had been performed. And I think that was good. Um, I think that, interestingly, there have been at least five, if not six, uh, very good fact-finding trips that Indian civil society groups undertook to Kashmir. And I have to say that I think that those have had some effect because those have been picked up by the international media, they have got a circulation within the UN system, and so on. Um, Does that mean that most of those people uh, are ready to concede uh, the right to self determination to Kashmiris? I'm not sure. But I would say half of them do. So um, I think it's all right. I think that uh, even if the slightly wishy-washy position that says, oh, this should not be happening to you, although we think you should be part of India and your right to self-determination is not a valid argument, I think that that position, uh, even if it annoys Kashmiris, at least it's better than the other position that they could possibly take.
0: There have been reports of Israeli involvement in Kashmir. Do you have any information on that? Um, well,
1: there is enough news now about the formal collaboration between the defense forces of Israel and the Indian Army. Uh, in Kashmir, uh, we have had a significant visit by the deputy chief of the IDAF uh, some years ago, um, which was highly unusual because we don't hear the deputy chief of the IDAF, for example, going to Nagaland or to Chennai or some, you know uh so these was these are significant uh, this time around uh, many journalists wrote about a very new and very different way in which uh, the clampdown was being conducted uh people who follow these things closely could very very clearly see a kind of signature of the way the israeli uh, security forces have operated in uh the west bank there is also uh a very, very different level of high technology surveillance equipment which is being used by the JNK police. Um, obviously, we, we can't tell, but after August 5th, there were these rumors of small teams of uh, quote unquote Israelis uh, who were floating around. Um, we don't know if, if that is necessarily true, but we what we do know is that the way in which the curfews and the clampdowns were being Uh, conducted uh, had a very different signature to it and a signature which is familiar to those who follow events in Palestine.
0: In the Kashmir context, the word Shaheed and Shahadat are particularly uh, important. Explain what those terms mean.
1: Shaheed, Shahid is one of those words which has a kind of dual meaning where you are both uh, witness and martyr this idea that once you witness something you're also a martyr to it you know you can't escape it then you know so the act of witnessing is a very complete thing so i really like this duality and actually i must tell you this that when we when we looked at it the word martis in in greek also has the same duality So martis, which is the root word for martyr, actually also has within it the idea of witnessing. So it's very interesting that both in Greek and in Persian, that this word always has had this kind of duality. So I think it's it's for all of us who are both witness and martyr to what we are witnessing. I think it's a reassuring word in that sense.
0: Well, how closer to Azadi, that dream of freedom, is Kashmir today?
1: You're asking me to speak about something which obviously, um, you know, who can wager a, a guess? But I think that these years, these last past 30 years of a very, very expensive and brutal struggle for which Kashmiris have really paid with their blood, I think these have not been wasted years. These have been years in which people have understood for themselves what are we standing for, who are we, what constitutes a Kashmiri. So I think that in in political terms, these have been years in which there's been some clarification. And I think that even in the present, even post uh, August 5th with the abrogation of Article 370 and 35A it has only sharpened that conversation all I can say is that what do we ask the people of Palestine for example, You know, we can't ask them that how close are you to achieving your goal, all we know is that if the goal is an ethical and honourable one, then it's worth fighting for, does it mean that you are fighting it just for the sake of it, I don't think so, I don't think anybody in Kashmir thinks that they are fighting a futile war you know, I think they think victory is somewhere around the corner. Will it be one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years? Who can say? But the fight is on, for sure.
0: Thanks very much for your time.
1: Thank you, David. Always a pleasure.
0: You were just listening to Sanjay Kak on Kashmir in Crisis. I talked with him in Vancouver, British Columbia in mid-November 2019. Sanjay Kak is a New Delhi-based award-winning independent documentary filmmaker. He's also the editor of Until My Freedom Has Come, The New Intifada in Kashmir, and Witness. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Arundhati Roy, Chris Hedges, and Noam Chomsky. And we have a series of programs on Kashmir. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Sanjay Kak on Kashmir in Crisis, call us at one eight hundred. Triple four one nine seven seven. Again, that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven, or you can order on our website alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening.